Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Josie Iselin, hosted by Erwin Keller, titled The Curious World of Seaweed. To view images shown during this originally videotaped conversation, go to josieiselin.com. That's J-O-S-I-E-I-S-E-L-I-N.com. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's wonderful to be back with you all. I'm here today with one of our beloved New School hosts, Rabbi Erwin Keller, to welcome Oceans activist and artist Josie Islin to the New School. We want to thank the Mesa Refuge for co-presenting this event with us. Josie was a resident at the Mesa Refuge last October, and I believe Susan Page Tillett, uh, Mesa Refuge's executive director, is here with us today. Thank you, Susan, and the Mace Refuge. We'll have produced audio and video files available on our website, and you can find all of our recordings also on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. Ken Adams is behind the scenes, as always, helping us with production, so thank you, Ken. Finally, thank you for donations to the new school. We operate on a really slim budget, and your donations allow us to make these events available to everyone, regardless of their situation. So if you haven't already, you can donate on our website, and I will add the link to our chat box soon. So Erwin Keller and Josie Islin, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you so much, Kira, and welcome, Josie. Um, I... Before I introduce Josie, I just want to say how excited I am about the conversation today. It's in some ways a little far afield for me and 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 not. I, 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 I think that we all respond so strongly to beauty and the beauty of the natural world. And it's something that we um, that's uncapturable or I thought was uncapturable until I saw your work. Um, and so uh, I'm really just I'm excited and uh, grateful that you would that you're joining us today, Josie. So let me just um, say that Josie uh, Islin is a fine art photographer and a book author, passionate about the natural world around her. Josie is intent on looking closely at the objects of our world and asking how we can learn both about and from them. Uh, she's the author of the book, The Curious World of sea Seaweed. That's her newest book. And it takes a deep dive into the ocean universe of marine algae, creating a nexus where art and science converge. Um, and uh, I think that stands for all of Josie's work. It's where art and science or art and mindfulness of the natural world converge. So welcome, Josie. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much, Erwin. I am so delighted to be part of um, the Commonweal and New School and the connection to the Mesa Refuge is really wonderful. Um, that was a tremendous experience I can talk about later. Um, but I thought maybe as a, as a kind of first introduction into the world that we're going to be talking about and that I am so um, involved with and passionate about, I would show just a, a video that I made right at the beginning of the um, of the COVID nineteen shutdown. All my my printers and fabricators, everybody kind of shut down, but thought, well, let's try some new things. So we we made this um, video that I thought I would share, and then that can we can kind of um, take our conversation from there. Seaweeds and kelp are some of the great eco-engineers of our planet. 
They are photosynthesizing powerhouses, growing rapidly in cold waters, creating the base of the vast ocean food chain. Kelp and seaweeds provide crucial habitat for countless other organisms, both tiny and large. They sink carbon and oxygenate their nearshore waters. Marine algae, another name for seaweed, are essential and also spectacularly beautiful. Their stories are compelling and important and deserve to be told with more than words. My newest book, The Curious World of Seaweed, begins like this. The thin region where the sea meets the land is unlike either land or sea. It is betwixt and between, a threshold from one state to another. It is a linear point or a coastal ribbon, a place of dramatic change and remarkable abundance, abundance of life and also of possibility. From the ocean's perspective, the approach to the world's great land masses is from the deep and dark pelagic, up over a continental shelf into a dim region where light barely penetrates the water, and on up into a brighter photic zone, what might be called the subtidal, and continues into the low intertidal where the extreme full moon tides pull away the water once or twice a month, and up towards the beach or rocky reef where the ocean swells in and out in six-hour cycles, and up finally to the highest tide mark, the rack line, where the ocean leaves its debris to mark a final encroachment towards dry land. This sliver of ocean, where sunlight penetrates enough to allow photosynthesis to work its magic, and where the benthos, or ocean bottom, provides something to hold on to, is the home of the seaweeds, or marine algae. The Pacific Ocean's edge, where it encounters the North American continent, is considered one of the richest of these rich zones. This slice of ocean, from Alaska to Baja, California in Mexico, has some of the most diverse and abundant seaweeds and kelps on Earth. The rocky, fog-shrouded coast sports a spectacular number of seaweed species, from enormous kelps to tiny corallines. The portraits and artwork made using my flatbed scanner have taken me deep into the world of seaweed, initiating a journey into scientific storytelling, ocean advocacy, and algal empathy. I hope you might come with me. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think now everyone is getting a sense of where we're going. I hope, I hope, and feel free to put into the chat field, folks, whatever you're experiencing, whatever's bubbling up from looking at those images. And we'll be looking at more images. Algal empathy. So, Josie, before, I, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you about technique, how you make these incredible images. But my first question is, is you come from a fine arts background. What brought you to the ocean? What brought you to the seaweed? How did that marriage happen? Well, I've been connected to the ocean all my life. Um, I grew up in New York City, but I spent childhood summers in Maine and on an island in Maine. And um, uh, I, I'm a sailor in, in a past life. So I've actually spent you know, time out in the middle of the ocean. Um, 
when my kids were small, we mostly spent summers sitting on a beach collecting rocks. Um, and as my practice through graduate school and beyond, um, as an as an artist, I found I when especially when my children were small, I was scanning those things that were collecting around my house. And what tended to collect around my house was stones, and in particular, beach stones. Um, here, I've lived in San Francisco for oh, 30, over 30 years now. And from the very, very beginning, I've walked very, very regularly at Fort Funston. That's like my home beach. Um, and collecting small stones from there uh, was one of the beginning acts of thinking about, you know, we curate what we find. And, and that whole process of looking closely. And the very first book that I produced back in 2006 was this book called Beach Stones. And this is just a very considered look at a collection of stones and actually a, quite a personal collection of stones. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to picture you for a moment in this, in this process is that you were not on the beach with your camera. You were not, let's take beautiful pictures of things in nature. You were out there with your hands collecting bringing home and and the imagery, the, the sort of the second level imagery came later. Right. And I really think of that. I was struck. I remember walking down the beach at Fort Funston and there was a wonderful stone collection and I was picking up my collection of stones. But my my great friend who was walking beside me, who's a wonderful landscape architect, she was picking up just a completely different set of stones that were meaningful to her. And I was thinking about this curation and how this bit of artistry that happens between you and our world is very unique and that that is a wonderful thing to recognize in and of itself, um, that we will all pick up our own collection of stones. Um, and I just happened to put them on my scanner and make this funny little book that was called 50 Stones uh, because my sister-in-law had given 50 stones to a friend for her 50th birthday party, I mean, birthday as a present. And um, I kind of built that into this accounting of a collection of stones. And that was the, the proposal that was then uh, sent out in Abrams in 2005. Um, love, loved the idea. And then they um, said, well, let's pair you with a scientist. Um, so this book, Beach Stones, was kind of my first connection to the science world. And um, my editor at Abrams connected me with a wonderful um, writer named Margaret Carruthers. And I'm still in close touch with Margaret. She's an amazing geology writer. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually manages, I think, the social media for the Hubble telescope. Huh. <laughs> uh, now, and, you know, we've all had our, you know, these, this evolution of our professional lives. But she, that was a wonderful first foray for me of my imagery going out in this very intensive way of, of me looking very intently at these images of stones and all these questions bubbling up as I'm deep in the pixels of a particular image saying, you know, why does it look this way? Why are these lines like this? Why is this color variant like this? Why does this look like a thumbprint? And I would send those questions over to Margaret, and then she would kind of scaffold her geologic response around that kind of visual response. And so you you began a kind of storytelling. You were exactly. telling stories of these stones as well as looking at the beauty of them. Yeah, and I think that kind of lyrical, how can we tell these scientifically correct 
and and researched, you know, not superficial stories, but in a lyrical way that connects to what we're seeing or what we lay people will find when we walk on the beach. There's something interesting in what you're saying around uh, artistic process, whatever I know of it, but but that, uh, you know, artists often shun interpretation, right? It, this is expression and then let the interpreters do what they want. And and here it seems like you also have a mission, which is to, to be interpretive of nature in your in your art. Yes, I, and I think I have found that I um, I do walk this kind of fine line between fine art and science and something else. I don't want to call it commercial art, but I've always been a little bit wary of the fine art world and the gallery world because it can be kind of opaque in its way. Um, but I did come out of an MFA where they're expecting you to go into that into that kind of white box world. And I ended up making books instead. And I've really found that books are really my muse, the format of the book, because it necessitates this, this um, writing component, uh, which by its nature is, is not so opaque. It's explanatory, it's revelatory. In, and yet the text, my, my whole um, ethos around building image-driven or visually-driven books is not that the text is a pure caption right. or that the images are a pure illustration, but that, that that tension between word and image is what makes something much bigger than the pieces. The, uh, the This sort of co-equalness of sort of the science, the information, and the image is, is really interesting to me. I think in part um, because underwater life is so mysterious to so many of us. You know, the, the vastness of the ocean. And I know there are people in this room who are in the ocean all the time. And I will speak as someone who was traumatized by swimming lessons as a child. <laughs> I so understand. I, I have gone snorkeling in reefs, you know, under duress. And I have, I have been amazed at the beauty, even, even through my sheer terror of being there. Um, but I think for, for most humans, um, the world under the water is so completely alien and so completely compelling. Um, the images just draw us in as if, as if something in our DNA wants to return to the ocean. Um, and so the mystery of it is so compelling and there's so much that we, we we don't understand it. It's not part of our daily experience. Yeah, I'm I'm very aware that, you know, I came up with this, this term, the lid of the tide. You know, the surface of the ocean really holds um, its secrets pretty tight. You cannot just hike out into the kelp forest. Like you can go in up to Marin or into the East Bay parks or Muir Woods for that matter to experience um, the, the redwood forests. And yet there are, are equivalents to the redwood forests just a few hundred, a few yards out beyond the shore. Have you gone in and under or is everything? So what's I am not a scuba diver. I grew up in New York City where there are no pools and I didn't learn to swim until I was quite a bit older and the water in Maine is very, very cold. But I appreciate, so I'm not a scuba diver, 
but I am, I will jump at any, any opportunity to snorkel. I do love to swim in the ocean and that is this very rejuvenatory and, and um, I will swim in the ocean whenever I can and I will snorkel. So I have done a bit of snorkeling up um, in particular on the North coast in the kelp uh, up on in Sonoma, which is, is absolutely revelatory. And then I thought the beauty of Instagram is that, you know, I follow all these divers and marine biologists. So um, I'm constantly shown. But I think one of the interesting things that I encountered when I first started really wanting to tell the story of, of these elements of our ocean that we don't see is that our, our human propensity was to go for the animals. Um, it kind of began when I was um, becoming a, um, a docent of the Duxbury Reef. So I took a course, uh, a Rocky Shores naturalist course that was run out of the Academy of Sciences with the wonderful Rebecca Johnson there. And so I would go out to the Duxbury Reef uh, very often, and I still do, you know, it is really ground zero for me. Uh, and I know there are many of you from Bolinas right here. And um, it's just a magical, magical place. But when I did one of these first courses wait, many, many years ago, um, Rebecca is a nudibranch expert and everyone had kind of, you know, fanned out over the reef and was commenting on the starfish here or the limpet here, or, oh my gosh, a nudibranch here. And I was looking down and, and saying, but most of what we're seeing, no one is talking about. Most of what we're seeing here on the reef is the algae, is this kind of darkened, nondescript plant material, algal material, actually, they're not plants. And I happened to hold a scrap up to the sky that was one of the red seaweeds and got that kind of hit you in the eyeball. Oh my goodness, look at this color and look at this form. I have to somehow get this onto my scanner to try to capture something that no one is talking about. And so that was back in 2009. And more and more there is, but but it was a part of the story. It had kind of fallen out of, you know, maybe because it's a primary producer and the algae doesn't really have any intrinsic commercial value or it's not a breathing organism so we can't relate to it the way we can relate to uh, you know a nudibranch as another or I don't know right the, the way the way that you shift our gaze to it is really marvelous and the reason I was asking if you if you if you did do any uh, diving is because your imagery and this is going to bring us to our conversation about your technique how you do this how you do these images but You've taken them out of the water. They're not floating. They're lying on a scanner. And the product, they all look like they're floating. They all look like they're simply weightless um, and that we're somehow looking at them in situ, in the, in the ocean somehow, with just the perfect lighting that you've created underwater. Um, well, what, part of that is that I, and we'll go, I'll, I'll kind of take, bring you into my studio in a second. But one of the things I found when I started using my flatbed scanner, um, oh my gosh, right after I got out of graduate school, so probably around 1995, <laughs> um, is that it allows, it, it strips away context. So you don't have all that water in there, or if you're dealing with with things up here in this part of the world, you don't have horizons and background and landscapes. And it lets these objects really speak for themselves. 
you kind of strip away scale. So scale has this malleability. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll take you, take you into my studio here. So this is my scanner. And so this is right here next to me in my studio here in San Francisco. And this is actually the same scanner I've been using since 2009. Scanner technology doesn't change actually. But what this, what this machine has allowed me to do is number one, be very, very consistent in the imagery, but um, to create that feeling, Erwin, that you were just talking about, about um, being underwater or, put, or having that translucent feel is that the top portion of this, um, of this machine, my scanner, is what's called the transparency adapter. And if I take that white cover off, there's a secondary light element up there. And that light element is designed to scan slides and negatives, transparencies. Uh-huh. So that secondary element is kind of pushing light through as the object, as the scanner is being captured. So you can see I have a, a specimen on there. That's a beautiful prionitis. And I would take that white cover off and close that lid. Um, I might use my little helper stones down there if I have a very flamboyant um, specimen that I don't want to smush too hard. I'll use those stones to kind of prop the top up a little bit so it doesn't smush it. And one of the secrets about the scanner is I do have a little bit of depth of, of depth of field. I can get um, a little bit of focus uh, beyond just a single plane. So that gives some life. So if we go, if I go to the next slide, here is the result of that transparency adapter. This is the beautiful rosy red erythrophyllum. And this is a very common seaweed out on our reefs. It really is this color. You can see on the left that I've put this onto my scanner pretty fresh. It still has that little sign of ocean. It's wet. You can see the bubbles of water that are still on the specimen there. Um, It hasn't been pressed completely and dried completely. Whereas on the right, I'm experimenting with a little bit more abstraction, Um, Those are a series of specimens that I've pressed in my plant press and dried. And then I'm playing with with this kind of collage, collaging of elements. So Uh, so the question, so um, the the composition is created on the scanner. You're not creating elements that then you overlap in a computer in Photoshop. No, it's happening right on that glass platen that you saw. Instead of just a single... Instead of, um, I can go back, instead of just the single specimen there, I will place my specimens, it's a big 13 by 17 inch glass. Um, And so I will actually do the compositions right there on the scanner. And it will take me a few, you know, a few tries. Um, And I can, one of the great benefits is I can do a preview view before I make the big long scan, which might take 10 or 15 minutes because I'm making these very high resolution files. But one of the things that's just one other element to the scanner that's important uh, is that it gives me not only these really high resolution files, so I can use them either in the book format as a fine art print or as these big curtains or some other big scaled um, image or or printout. Um, It also gives me very true color and very consistent color. And the color of the seaweeds is so much a part of their story evolutionarily, biologically, and also artistically. So I don't ever change color. What you see, I'm trying to match 
what I'm seeing in my specimen as closely as possible. And the scanner, the light parameters are completely fixed, uh, very different than when you're taking pictures with a camera, as most people will know. So that's kind of a cool. Can you say something more about what you mean about the uh, color being part of their story evolutionarily? Sure. So this erythrofilum is in the red category. And the red, the, the seaweeds have three evolutionary lineages, the reds, the greens, and the browns. And I'll, I'll work my way through some images that get to kind of um, that image I use there. But a red like this um, erythrofilum has two accessory pigments in it. And those two pigments uh, are a blue pigment and a red pigment. And those allow the seaweeds to collect different wavelengths of light under the ocean because our daylight is very red heavy, but that's not necessarily the light, the photons that are gonna penetrate the density of the ocean. So the seaweeds have become very resourceful at collecting different wavelengths of light. And that red and blue pigment do that. And they combine to make this array of reds from this rosy red. And you can see some of the intense purple on the right there of the Maziella. You know, that's a perfect combo of the red and blue together. Um, um, I'll go on to this is the wonderful Halosacion, and it is actually in the red seaweeds, but it displays as this fantastic celadon. The red seaweeds do also have chlorophyll um, because uh, the, the pathway towards photosynthesis requires um, chlorophyll to, to drive the chemical pathways of photosynthesis. You can see it has some at the very base of these wonderful sea sacs. Uh, there's a little bit of the red. Um, there's a wonderful evolutionary story about these in that they have learned to hydrate themselves during the, the, the drying time of low tide by, by filling themselves with little bits of the ocean. You can see That's that. You can see the, the ocean, the water inside of these sacs. Yeah, it's whole little un ocean universes in there. And that's a very different strategy towards success than say the folio seaweeds that dry out and then rehydrate when the tide comes in. I'm, st I'm still just grooving on this, <laughs> on this idea. You know, we, we so much, our, our metaphor sets are all about life being green, right? Green is the, uh, green is the color mm -hmm. of growth. Green is the color of vegetation. And if we were, if we were underwater creatures, that wouldn't be the case at all, we would have a much right. greater- Exactly, and I think one of the, I, I can, as I go through, there's a lot to go through here and I will go through it and kind of give you the back, but but one of my points, Erwin, and you just struck on it, is that we have these set of assumptions based on being terrestrial beings, that you know, green is the main color of life, that we don't even think about gravity. Um, it's such a given, but these organisms, well, they don't have to deal with gravity. They have the buoyancy of, of the ocean. Um, but can we even imagine if say our, in our backyard, like gravity got sucked away every five, six hours and then came flooding back in? No, or, or what if it was our, our atmosphere? You know, the, the, what we breathe got oh, six hours off, six hours on. But that's how the kelps and the seaweeds have evolved. Um, a question, uh, oh, I mean, of course, I, I will want to, as, as a former drag queen, I will want to spend some time here with the feather boa kelp. But um, we uh, Alicia asks a question in the chat, wondering how you, uh, 
how you move the specimens from ocean to your studio? Do you keep them immersed? So um, what I learned and what I, one of the ways that I um, kind of came into the science of seaweed was I did a number of workshops with um, the curator of marine algae over at UC Berkeley's University Herbarium, which has the foremost collection of uh, seaweed specimens on the West Coast. And her name is Kathy Ann Miller. And she, very early on, we learned that to, when you collect seaweeds, usually these are found as rack on the beach. Like this um, beautiful feather boa was just uh, washed up at Fort Funston. Like a good portion of my work comes from Fort Funston or from these uh, seaweed workshops that I did with Kathy Ann. And they don't need to be wet. They just need to stay cold. Staying mm. cold. So if I collect in a bucket or in a, I when I go to the beach, I usually just take my newspaper bags with me or I take a plastic bag with me and put my seaweeds in there. And then when I get home, I might try to get the sand off of them, but I will just stick that bag right in the refrigerator. Um, and you'll know, I have a note over here that <laughs> is, is from my kids from many years ago that says, remind mom about seaweed, which is that the seaweed is in the refrigerator and maybe you should not forget it in there. <laughs> um, so, the keeping cold is the operative there. It doesn't need to be immersed in water. I might have a bucket of seawater out on my back porch um, to wash them off with before I put them in this on the scanner. I'll, I'll get I'll make myself a little tub in my studio. Um, I don't want them too drippy when they go on my scanner, so my scanner doesn't get too um, watery, but. Um, one of the another great benefit of the scanner is that glass um, is impermeable and I can always clean it. Um, I have my my glass cleaner right there. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Josie Islin and host Erwin Keller. So tell us about this feather boa. So feather boa is just um Erwin, we're going to decorate you with feather bow. At one point, we're going to go out to the reef and we will find you the perfect uh, um, uh, accoutrement. Um, it's one of my favorites because it has this kind of wackiness to it, this crazy shape or form, which I've learned uh, is, is the kind of lay language for morphology. Um, and that's that whole like kind of evolution for me of feeling comfortable with using the words of science is an interesting um, progression for me. But it's it has no real counterpart in our in the worlds that we recognize. Uh, it's this very it's this strap with these paddle shaped blades and these whimsical bladders that come off of it. And when I first wrote a proposal for my book, The Curious World of Seaweed. I wanted to see if I could write an essay called Empathy for a Kelp. And it was the feather boa kelp that I chose because I wanted to, to really try to get into its world and have an algal-centric point of view. So this was just a specimen I found that was just too jazzy, too fabulous um, to not put on the scanner. It's yeah, I, I don't know whether should I stop and and or should I just kind of go through and talk about these and then we can kind of pop out and well, um, they're you know they're also really inspiring to just ha have on the screen while we're speaking. I think um, sure I know that my eyes are really feeling 
um, fed. By yeah. Oh, good. So I think it's okay for us to go a little bit afield, even while the slides are sitting there. I'm, since you raised it, I'm I'm curious if you want to spend a couple of minutes and tell us about what it was like to become comfortable with scientific language. Why was that necessary? And what was your entrance into the science world like? Yes, I think um, that is a really interesting one. And I... Um, initially had this kind of aversion to the to the fine art world in and of itself, which kind of was an, or an ambivalence towards it. And when I made of the first three books, the, this book, Beach Stones, followed very um, uh, closely with another book called Leaves and Pods, which was all about just leaves and pods I collected in the neighborhood. Um, it went out of print almost immediately. Um, and then I made a third book on seashells. And each of those books, I was paired with um, a scientist. So I was just the photographer, but the process I was using was this process, which I use to this day where the imagery came first. And I would make these very straight ahead portraits of the leaves or the shells or the stones. And then I would send these images with all my questions that arose from looking so closely to these various scientists. But I worked with a single editor for all three books. And she, we, together, myself and that editor, editor, we kind of crafted this kind of lyrical way of writing and putting together this, this really visually driven but scientifically compelling book or series of books. And then I thought, wow, well, you know, maybe I can write these myself. And so I wanted to make a book about everything we find at the beach. So I made this book called Beach, a Book of Treasure. So this is Beach, a Book of Treasure. And this was made by Chronicle Books in uh, 2010. And I really wanted all of us beachcombers to be able to say, I can, this is a portal into our ocean world. The beach is this funny liminal piece of space between these very different worlds. And one of which is very, is kind of hidden away to us. And, it, but it leaves all these clues on the beach. The ocean winking at us. Yeah. The ocean winking at us, exactly. It's kind of a wonderful way to put it. So I really start with sand and I kind of move through sand dollars and shells and fossils and, um, and I include seaweed for the first time. Um, and I researched Anna Atkins for this book and that's what led me into the cyanotype printing, which we can look at later. But but this relationship to the uh, but, 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 science. I need a footnote here, Anna yeah. Atkins. So really what I found so inspiring by her when I was writing this book was she was a polymath, a Victorian polymath uh, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s in England. Um, her father was part of the Academy of Sciences in England um, in its nascent stages but she they had a neighbor who was experimenting with the very first photographic techniques and in particular the cyanotype techniques and she was an avid seaweed collector and England has you know beautiful and bountiful seaweeds that were becoming quite popular to collect in Victorian the Victorian era but she was also comfortable with the chemistry of this new photographic technique. So she, to me, was this wonderful polymath. She um, was a naturalist. 
She was a chemist, but she also used these new techniques for visual, you know, kind of self-expression. But she created a book in 1840 of cyanotype impressions of her seaweed collections. And she was inspired by one of the first descriptions of seaweeds that had come out by the great William Henry Harvey, but they were just word descriptions. There were no pictures. So she kind of said, oh, maybe I can make those pictures. So she's been very, very inspiring to me. And my what I found is that my scanner technique, actually, there's, there's a connection. There's a, a whole process called nature printing. Um, and nature printing is where you're making an image directly from the specimen. It's not an illustration like botanical illustration, or it's not through a lens like a, can- like a photograph. It's actually either putting a, a, a leaf right through the printing press, which would happen at times, uh, but cyanotype printing is a nature printing technique. Um, and uh, maybe I'll go back and just kind of to illustrate this part. And then I, I can go back to kind of the science. But this, these are, are my, my cyanotypes um, that I made as kind of homage to Anna Atkins using my specimens. So I coat the paper. It's a light sensitive paper. I mean, a light sensitive emulsion that I'm coating on the paper in the dark of my garage, which is right there. Then I take it out into my backyard with the specimen sandwiched between the paper and some glass. And where the sun, the UV hits the emulsion, it hardens to this Prussian blue, fabulous deep blue. That's why it's cyanotype. The, yeah, cyan, yeah, and the the where it's been shadowed by the specimen, it washes out to the white of the paper. So what we're looking at here, the image of the image of the algae is that's not the algae. That's um, no, that's, that's the, the shadow that, of the algae. It's, it's the its paper. Own shadow. It's the negative space. It's the negative space exactly. Um, and, and I'm actually going to stop sharing for a second because. Um, but but then I, I started thinking, saying, well, um, that I can actually place my scan in that same, into that cyanotype. And there's a conversation that's happening because my scan is also a nature printing technique. It's, mm-hmm. it's imaging directly from the specimen. And so this idea of there being this kind of conversation between the specimen and its shadow between the past and the present um, is something I'm very excited about. And um, this is a beautiful Apuntiella, which is a fabulous red seaweed uh, that has these funny Mickey Mouse ears. Um, and it's a cyanotype that I made actually on, um, on, tra- on, on a transparent paper. Uh, and then- um, While we're on any of these cyanotypes, well, Maybe it's not showing here. Don from Bellinas had a question about that first one, that in that negative space, you actually, there was, it wasn't just white paper. There were also grays. There were other. Um, yes. Grid- so, so once I make in one of the, once I make the cyanotype to start, um, I, I digitize it so that I can layer my, my scan into it. And once I digitize something, then I start playing with layers. And so that one of those on the left was actually a combination of two cyanotypes kind of layered together. Um, so everything is up for grabs for me, you know, once, so um, this, that's, that's me, that was me playing around. 
So say, say more about this one that looks like a Matisse um, cutout, a Matisse um, paper cut. Yeah, well, and 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 I think of Matisse, those Matisse cutouts as so playful. And there's such a playfulness to the seaweeds in general. It's part of their demeanor that is so um, compelling. Um, but this one, this is the image that I use to introduce the chapter in the newest book that really talks about algal color. And, and and really goes into depth about the that combination of accessory pigments that we talked about earlier. And this is Maziella, which when dried goes to this kind of majestic royal purple, which is the true marriage of that red accessory pigment and the blue accessory pigment coming mm. together. And so I've placed it in its cyanotype and the cyanotypes you know, are all about color. The overlay really of two images. It's the, your scanner image of the thing itself um, over the cyanotype where you just see the white cut away from the blue. Exactly. And it's a shadow made by this exact same specimen. So I'm mm -hmm. using the same specimen on both techniques. One creates a shadow of itself and one makes this colorful translucent image of itself. And then I kind of get to play with how they interact with each other. Um, this is the image I use to talk about that those three lineages of color and really um, talk about the taxon taxonomy of seaweed or the evolutionary lineage of seaweed. So you have the reds, the greens, and the brown. And it really shows you that the greens are just this deeply, de only have chlorophyll in them. Um, and it's the green seaweeds that that migrated up onto the nearshore ecologies and created all of our terrestrial vascular plants. So that green of life that we associate that is chlorophyll based is the green of green algae. And that's why we crawled out of the ocean looking for where did the green algae go? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and the browns, the kelps fall in the brown category. This quality of backlighting, the translucent quality that you capture, uh, you know, the quality of the translucent quality of the of the seaweed and the way you capture it in the art is just spectacular. And it brings to mind for me like Morris Lewis um, drip, um, the, 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 the use of um, uh, the, the drip paintings that where you have overlapping um overlapping colors creating those those um those overlap spaces of of mixed color or darker shade so beautiful and, the, and just to interject there i love that connection because and the importance of the white space in his work yes um, yeah with that and that overlapping yeah no it's i mean the fun that i have has really kept me i mean i haven't used a camera camera in a long time and the, miss all it? the capabilities that this, the scanner gives me keep me um just floored by you know every specimen i bring home what is it um what does it feel like to you i'm not even certain what i'm asking there's there's an element of your of these images that's so alive, so speaks of a life force that so is so spiritual in a way. Um, is that something that you're aware of as you're assembling, composing, creating? 
it's it's something I'm very very absolutely. I mean, when I first started scanning the seaweeds and my my first series and the first book I made the the secret life of seaweed, the, I very much call them algal portraits. That I am letting each particular specimen tell their story, speak for themselves, and. I'm very aware in the, in this bookmaking process as we as I kind of combine these images with scientific storytelling that I want the algae to to speak for themselves. I don't I don't want to impose our like human structures on the stories and yet ugh we kind of have to and I'm actually in this real push and pull right now with my next project in trying to keep this algal-centric um, kind of uh, a bent to the storytelling. How do, we, how do I let them tell us their story from their perspective? And that's very, very hard. All of our structures are, you know, I'm getting this, well, we need to have this dramatic, you know, three-point story arc that is the theatrical story arc. And I'm like, or we need it to be chronological. Huh? How do we make the algae charismatic? Right. And it is natural. And that's where the imagery helps. But it's it's something I'm constantly um, struggling with and striving for with each story is to be super aware of how human centric we we are in looking at the world and how to kind of bring this other world to life. I was uh, one summer up here on Sonoma Mountain. I was walking down the road and I saw this vast field of blackberry bushes and they were full of blackberries, but they were in a place that was inaccessible. Like you couldn't get to, you couldn't get to them. Yeah. There was no possible way to get to them. And I said to myself, oh, what a waste. <laughs> and then I heard myself. And I had to stop and uh, and stop and re-examine my my anthropocentric view of the world around me. That uh, a blackberry bush that I couldn't actually reach and eat the, and uh, eat the fruit of was exactly. of no use in the world. And um, and one of the stories that I really try to tell is that you know when you're on the beach and most people see a big pile of seaweed rack and they kind of go ew that's kind of stinky and I'll walk around that. I'm saying, well, give it a closer look and look at all of the kelp flies and isopods and things that are eating that kelp and think of what an abundance that is for the shorebirds and for migrating birds who need protein on their, on their journeys and how it's essential for the nearshore ecologies, that kelp rack that we find kind of stinky. What have... What have you learned about the the needs of the ocean environment or the intertidal environment? What are the needs of the kelp that we need to know about? So, um, yeah, the, the the story of the kelp forest on the on the north coast of of California, Sonoma and Mendocino, is kind of a um, a little bit of a of a warning sign, um, or it's not a little bit. It's it's a drastic warning sign about. Um, the state of kelp forests globally. And I'll just very, very quickly synopsize um, what the situation there. Most people probably know, especially your folks who are um, 
who are so connected to things. But the there were a few events that came together between 2014 and 2016 that was a couple of ocean warming events. Uh, there was that warm blob that came down and kind of parked itself, a warm blob of ocean water called the blob, parked itself off our coast. Uh, that combined with an El Nino um, series of years, and these happened at the same time that the, the very mysterious starfish wasting disease really decimated starfish populations all up and down the West Coast. And while starfish happily, I, starfish in the intertidal have come back, uh, a very important urchin predator starfish has disappeared from the waters of the West Coast. It's called Pycnopodia or sunflower star. And it's this big 20 armed starfish, deep water starfish often called the wolf of the sea, it was quite an effective urchin predator. And during that same time of the, those warming ocean events, there was a, an urchin spawning event that had the effect in, in, the, in the lack of presence of any predator for the urchins. The purple sea urchin population uh, exploded by 65-fold. It just absolutely went bananas. And those purple urchins are very voracious algal eaters. They're herbivores. And so the balance of the kelp forest depends on a certain amount of predation of the sea urchin. Um, and with all those, those the, the, the sunflower star gone uh, is happening within the context of the top predator in the system, the sea otter. Uh, with which all the kelp forests of the entire West Coast evolved, having a top predator, a voracious urchin eater. Um, otters have to eat a quarter of their body weight every day. So they build resilience into the kelp forest that they feed within. And in the absence of the sea otter, because there have been no sea otter up on the North Coast since 1850, once the Russians left for, uh, Fort Ross, they left because the sea otter were wiped out. Um, there are some sea otter that have built their population on the central coast of California, um, up through you know around the the Monterey Bay, uh, the Monterey Peninsula, uh, and that all evolved from a refugial population in Big Sur. But none of those otter have migrated north of the Golden Gate. Even north of Santa Cruz, you really don't have any any sea otter. You you might see river otter you know, up at Abbott's Lagoon and their river otter. River otter are very different. Um, but but there are no sea otter holding down that top predator position within the kelp forest. So as a result, this explosion of purple urchin have decimated the kelp forests. And um, um, there is all this remedial work going on. But that is just a story that is, it's it's just caught on. To, you know, it's being told in um, magazine articles, and I'm actually going to, I'm hoping... Who's this doing this remedial work, and what's the nature of the remedial work? So, um, I'm putting a link up in the, in the chat right there, and this is an article that just came out in Bay Nature by a wonderful diver scientist, um, kelp amazing person, Tristan McHugh. And she has worked for the Reef Check organization. And Reef Check is, a, is a, a group that organizes volunteer divers to do survey work all up and down. Um, they're, they're global, I think, but there's California Reef Check, which, which um, surveys uh, underwater 
uh, for the entire California coast. And she has spearheaded a recovery effort up for um, near around Fort Bragg in Noyo Harbor and those environs. And it entails harnessing volunteer urchin, commercial urchin, urchin divers um, and volunteer abalone divers and anyone who can put on a, a scuba gear and collect urchins. So, so collect urchins, urchins and take them out. Is there- And take them out. And unfortunately, purple, so there's two kinds of urchins. There's purple urchins and there's red urchins. And the red urchins have had a commercial fishery since sushi um, blossomed as something that us Americans like to eat in the mid 80s. I don't know if you, I remember very clearly eating my first sushi. Um, the, the red urchin provides uni, which is a delicacy in the in the sushi world. So there has been a, a fishery, which very efficiently keeps the red, the bigger, larger red sea urchins, keeps their population pretty um, uh, stable. The purple urchins are smaller, and there has not been a marketable use for them found. Now that's changing. There are some people who are trying to actually ranch these urchins up to become marketable. So that's a, that's another part of this restoration effort. Um, but but Tristan has been spearheading in a very systematic and scientific way the process of clearing certain refugial bull kelp patches so that they, they might be a spore bank. And Tell us what you mean by refugial um, patches. So it means a refuge of a population. So a population that's left while, while populations are being decimated. Um, so the sea otter, for example, there was this very systematic killing off of the sea otter between 1750 and 1850 by all countries. Uh, and they not only killed the adults, but they killed the, the females and the pups. So it was absolutely extirpation. But there were a few hidden populations in certain bays. Uh, I think there were 13 hidden, maybe populations of 50 or 60 to 80 rat, you know, um, sea otter. Mm -hmm. And those, those are refugial, yeah. this tiny. So, so as the bull kelp has been decimated, uh, a number of things are being seen. Some of them are moving in towards shore where the urchins, they don't like the sandy, rougher wave action water. So actually the bull kelp are quite good at kind of moving in to be more shallow. And then there are a few of these patches that um, that are deeper where divers are trying to clear enough of the urchins to see if that can then... Um, grow into a bigger, uh, bigger patch. Um, and there's all sorts of other work where outgrowth, where <clears throat> see the, the bull kelp is being farmed on land and can we grow little tiny bull kelp and outplant them? And so there's lots of interest right now. Um, it, how is, and how does word, how does word getting out and into what communities is word, word and what's your role in this? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so the, the, the word, I mean, I've been listening in on this conversation for quite a long time. Um, and um, so articles like the one I just listed there um, in Bay Nature, uh, there was even an article in the, on the cover of the Times about the cockroaches of the sea, the, the urchins. Um, the community in Fort Bragg is extremely invested in the fate of their kelp forest. I mean, they're very connected to the kelp forest in this, not only a commercial way, but in this kind of 
visceral cultural way because the abalone diving has been such a part of the North Coast economy and community. So they're very invested. The Noyo Center uh, for Marine Science up in um, in Fort Bragg, they're fantastic. And their director, Sheila Siemens, is amazing. And me, I kind of am trying to keep my ear to the ground in terms of knowing the science. I'm in touch with Tristan I, all the time. Um, but trying to get us keep a sense of the storytelling. And what occurred to me very early on as I started hearing the first presentations by scientists in particular about the perfect storm that was giving rise to this huge fall off in kelp. Um, because even a couple of years ago, um, by 2019, you could see from some surveys that the kelp was reduced by like 90%. But I real I was hearing the stories and say, hearing about the combination of the warmer ocean and the disappearance of the sunflower stars. But I wasn't hearing anything mentioned about the overriding context about there being no otter in the system. And I kept asking the site, like, why are you not mentioning the otter? Well, there's a huge been a huge ambivalence towards the otter in communities, not only in the North Coast, that's an abalone diving center but also in Alaska and native communities that depend on abalone, clams, red urchin for, for foraged food. And otter and humans compete. Yeah. And it makes for this really interesting dynamic uh, that I'm very much passionate about telling that story and how complicated it is. Mm. Um, and we humans have been part of the ecology for a long time. But the otter have been gone for so long that they are kind of fallen out of the story. And the 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 bull kelp evolved with otter. They held a very important place in terms of that evolutionary history. And the otter just provide all this resilience and a, a buffer against stress. Um, so with them gone and us and all and natural stressors and us human stressors on the kelp forest system, it's harder and harder for it to kind of rebound. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Josie Islin and host Erwin Keller. Uh, it's, it's a kind of drama that takes place over so many years and again, out of our common sight. Um, and it is such a question of how do you tell that story and how do you convey the importance of it? Why? And maybe I'll just ask you that, like, why should we care about the kelp? Ooh, well, um, as I mentioned in the video, the kelp forests are like the rainforests or our hardwood forests, um, the temperate forests of our continents. They um, are amazing primary producers. And as and they're they're primary producers, which means they're the base of the food chain. They photosynthesize and create biomass, which then gets eaten. Um, it produces. It's the bottom of a food chain, but it also creates habitat, and it's really important habitat for fish species, like the rockfish of our California coast. There's many many species of rockfish, and in the course of my only a couple of years ago, I found out rockfish can live to be like. 200 years old, a fish, but the fish need a place to live. They need, you know, they need the kelp forest. 
um, all the the, pre, the the prey of all those predators need a place to hide. Um, the the larval stage of so many organisms need a nursery, and that nursery is the kelp forest. Um, it is it is this umbrella under which all the understory kelps and seaweeds live. So it, it's this vast, rich, rich world that has so many services. It 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 oxygenates its nearshore waters. So it's a it's a local buffer against acidification. Mm. Um, so it it's like the eel grasses or the sea grasses that are these kind of eco engineers. They create habitat and they create the base of a food chain. So they're super super important. Um, so yeah, we need them. We want them. <laughs> and and what they need is cold ocean is one of the things. They need cold, nutrient-dense water. Um, so all we can do on all fronts to kind of, you know, keep our, our, our planet cool, eat less fish, eat less beef, all those things. I want to uh, I want to open up the the floor and invite people to put their questions in the chat. Um, and you might have put a question in the chat before, and I might have missed it. So an invitation to repeat it if I didn't uh, get that question into the conversation. And while attendees are doing that, um, did you ever think when you were in art school that um, you would be you would end up being such an advocate for um, for the natural world around you? Have you always been connected to the natural world? Has it always spoken through you in some way? Um, so ab absolutely. Um, but when I was in art school, I was, uh, it was an interesting time. It was the early 90s and it was um, very much a time of kind of people of different, from different places finding their voice. So I was very much, um, as a, you know, white privileged person, I just felt like I, I had to, I didn't know what my voice was. It didn't, I felt like I really kind of had to be listening to others. And then I realized, no, I did have to find myself. Um, and it really, it really began this journey into kind of listening to what I was most attuned with, which were these objects of my natural world, um, began when I was a new mother. And that happened right in grad school. I had my first baby right in the middle of my graduate program. And then I had another and another. And I realized that it was the objects that from my world that would collect in my home and make their way onto my scanner that were what were really speaking to me uh, about being being talked about or as a way to let their world speak. So um, I think we're all connected to the nat. I hope we're all connected to the natural world pretty foundationally. Um, Susan is asking a question about Mesa Refuge. Uh, mm -hmm. Susan, the uh, executive director of Mesa Refuge. Uh, Want to know if you could say something about your residency there, which yeah. is just fall, uh, this fall, this last, when was it? And how, um, what it was like for you to be able to take that refuge, to take that time out and what that did for you artistically. 
Absolutely. And we were on a we were on a thread that we got a little bit diverted by the imagery that I want to come back to, which ties into my time at the Mesa Refuge, which was just fantastic, is is my journey into the science of of this pretty complex world, because the science of the seaweeds is um, especially their life cycles is very complex. And the the combination of the image making, it's the writing that necessitates that I get into the science and that I get into it pretty deeply and I make sure that I'm right. <laughs> and the writing is what the Mesa Refuge in this very um, intensive way allowed me and allows the, the it's a writer's residency. And having the time there, I was got to be there for two weeks in October. It was this absolutely magical time where, yes, I still had to do my teaching obligations, but the rest of the world really does go away. And I could focus very intensely on some of the research that was going on at that time. Um, for me, I could organize my research. You know, you get to spread out, you have a whole clean um, studio space. You don't have all this stuff around you. You don't have your husband upstairs saying what's for dinner. Um, and then could take that research and really um, think about how I wanted to organize it and then start writing. Um, and I ended up writing a, a full introduction to this next project that was bringing together the work of a wonderful um, scientist named Mia Tegner that I've just um, come to know and understand. And she unfortunately died in a diving accident in 2011. Mm. But she um, she was very much advocating for thinking about the science and the ecology on a longer time scale. And how are we um, making sure that we remember some of the elements to the ecology that have actually disappeared in our more... Um, more considered time scale, you know, and I, I felt that happening with the otter being dropped out of the ecological story as I listened to these presentations over the last five years. And now the otter is partly because I've been like <laughs> insisting on it. Um, but Mia Tegner was saying this way back as she was studying the kelp forests off the Southern California coast. So the Mesa Refuge gave me this space to discover Mia Tegner figure out how to weave her into my, into the story that I was trying to tell, how to take some of the, there was an otter conference going on, but it gave me all of this mind space. And I just, I can't say enough how important that is, um, especially since then when I haven't been able to find it again. <laughs> and I keep trying to say, how do I make a little Mesa refuge? But it's a beautiful space and it's just um, a, a very, very important experience. Um, I encourage any writers to apply for it, any kind of writers um, I'd be able to, to um, have that experience. For those who don't know where it is, it sits on the bluff in Point Reyes Station, look overlooking the Estero. And it's and particularly for the work that you're doing, Josie, I can't imagine um, any place more perfect that, you know, the environment, that environment, that mix of ocean and land um, speaking to you through the, you know, through those open doors, the open French doors, because I know what room. Right. You were. Absolutely. You look out over the reclaimed, very um, inner workings of the Tamales Bay, which is a reclaimed wetlands. 
Um, and, the, and there are other aspects to the Mesa Refuge too, besides its incredible locale just out from, from Point Ray Station is um, you have this amazing library uh, that um, is, is there as a resource. And you also get to interact with your co-residents, which is a lovely, very, very rich um, experience. And I also had a really, and you, every once in a while, you get together and have lunch with Susan and um, and the other kind of people at play in the with the Mesa Refuge. And I had a wonderful luncheon, but it was very telling to me uh, as we sat on this beautiful deck and talked about um, Katie Dye and her work, which is very, very interesting. She was my fellow resident. And then I was talking about my work and, and someone else at the table said, well, oh, what does a sea urchin look like? And, and someone else piped up and said, well, does the kelp grow from the surface down or does it grow from the bottom up? And I realized that even amongst those of us who live so close to this kelp world, it's just over the ridge of uh, of the point the point Reyes ridge line. There's a blue blindness. There's a um, again that lid of the tide holds its secrets very tight, and um, so there's definitely it makes my mission of bringing this work out to diverse audiences. There's all, a amount of the natural yeah. world that we, we learn as we grow up because we observe it. And, uh, and the ocean is something that we, we can't grow up observing. We can exactly. only learn it we can only learn it somehow didactically unless we've, we, we become divers. Um, and so there are a few of my heroes who are these, these scientists or teachers who are very passionate about bringing it out to um, this kind of broader audience. So I, I feel like I work in that. I honor them and work in that in that lineage. What are the uh, what are the ways that we can help in the preservation of the intertidal ecosystem? Um, so there are first of all just knowing. Uh, about it and becoming curious about the seaweeds and and reading up, but um, there's the Princip, the Point Reyes National Seashore Association, is a fantastic group, and they're um, doing all sorts of. That's very local to all you folk up there, um, and so absolutely join Princa and um, become involved in their work. Um, uh, if you are a diver and you want to volunteer, finding uh, reefcheck.org um, is, they are a, just a fantastic organization and they're incredibly well run and they, they really do hold down this very important role of surveying what is out there in the oceans. And they or, they're very well organized and they organize volunteer divers. So if you are a diver, uh, and want to help that way. That's, um, yeah, reefcheck.org is there in the chat. Um, and um, make art, you know, talk to your neighbors, go sniff the seaweed on the shoreline. Um, you know, talk to me more. I'm always open. I usually, you know, finish my presentation with my email right there. And I'll put it in here in the... Um, um, So please be in touch with me um, because we really want, I really, if there's 
you know, getting art opportunities. Um, uh, a bunch of us artists are working with a bunch of scientists to possibly put together a catalog of work that brings art and science together uh, mm. around this North Coast issue. So, um, the, um, I, we have limited time left. And so I'm going to suggest that you bring us maybe back to a couple of your favorite images um, because it's so, um, it's so cathartic to look at these. It so takes us out of our mechanical technological worlds in a very visceral way, you know, remembering our life under the sea. Um, right. So maybe I'll go back to... Um, I'll just kind of keep going with where we were and um, continue from there um, because there's, I, I really like, as we've been talking about thinking in, um, in, in kind of larger time scales, I really like interacting with history and the history of the seaweeds. And there are people, what one of the, the, the kind of, missions also for my book, The Curious World of Seaweed, was to say there were these people who've been thinking about the seaweeds very, very intensively. And those are actually the taxonomists, the seaweed scientists who are involved with describing it and naming it. Uh, and who were those first people? And what I discovered was that that taxonomic history has this visual component to it. So these are four lithographs from a publication uh, in 1853 that first described some of these iconic kelps of our California coast. So there's the feather boa on the far right there. And it's this huge, spectacular, six foot tall panel, series of panels that unfold. And my um, kind of question to myself was, could I then start having my contemporary scans uh, interact with these historical documents mm -hmm. and create what I think of as this dialogue, but also there's kind of like a vector, you know, from past to present, but a vector actually continues. It has an arrow on the end. Uh, so it's always implying a future. And so there's always this underlying foundational question of where will these organisms be in our in the future with such a changing ocean. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, nori or uh, pyropia, and it's layered on a lithograph by the wonderful Alexander Postels, who um, had this great affinity for the seaweeds in uh, the 1840s. The red color is the lithograph? The red color is the lithograph, and this is a seaweed in the red category, um, even though what you might find is this kind of dusky dusky color. And this is the sea lettuce. This is really that signature green of the green category, again, uh, layered on, um, on, the, on the older lithograph. And, and this we might even just end here. Um, this is Stephanocystis osmundacea. Uh, it's named after osmunda, the fern, because of those the lower, the, the, the um, blades on the bottom there. Kind of I want a stencil based on this. Yeah. Well, it has such a graphic quality and you often, what I write about, what I found to write to, to, so what I tried to do with each chapter of the curious world of seaweed was find what was it about each algae, each species that kind of was unique and told something about its life history biologically. And for this Stephanocystis, this top wonderful kind of maze of bladder chains, it's called bladder chain rack, 
create these magnificently graphic um, pieces that you find on the beach. And as a graphic, as a, as a designer, it's like, you know, the, the ocean is designing for us. Um, and so um, then this image actually gave rise to the book. Um, I see. And, and I guess I'll just finish. That's a cyanotype in part with an overlay of. Well, this is actually, it's not a cyanotype. It's one of those historical lithographs, but um, as I'm designing the books, as I go along. So I built these books as I go. Um, And color is something I needed to inject some color. It was getting very heavy on the kind of gold kelp colored side. And so I actually realized if I just invert this, this, um, historical lithograph, it goes to this beautiful, rich blue. So I didn't, it's, it's kind of a faux cyanotype. Yeah, like an old cameo, like a, like, um, exactly. Well, there's this Victorian feel to it all, but there's also a richness and it's a reminder that our seaweeds, especially of our California coast, we are, I'm just showing you this tiny, tiny fraction of the seaweeds that are out there and this incredible biodiversity, and we, it's one of the richest of the rich zones in, uh, of all the, the near shore oceans of our world. Um, and we are very, very lucky, lucky, lucky to live here. Attendees are, are wondering um, how, they can, how they can have some of these images in their lives. So your book, your merchandise, tell us. Sure. So the book is available at Point Race Books. Point Race Books is, you know, please go support them. I'm sure you all do. They're just such a fantastic um, uh, bookstore. And the, I think it's the Sparks, Steve and his wife and their, that fa- the family that, you know, they're doing such a great job. So go find The Curious World of Seaweed if they've run out. Of course, any bookstore can order um, uh, The Curious World of Seaweed. Again, I'll show you um, the cover. I, I, it's on my website. So my website is josieisland.com. Um, and you can go to the books page and you can order from your local bookstore. You can order it from Amazon. Um, my website also has uh, a whole um, prints uh, page where you can go actually buy um, fine art prints. So I can do big fine art prints. Um, there's a new website that I will, um, it's called Art Spring, uh, Art Spring bring.co I think um, that is brand new that is um, is really about very large prints and it's working with my longtime printer who I've worked with forever uh, light source here in the city and um, he's a master at these very large scale prints so you know I would love to do murals or architectural commissions which I have done in the past um, just be in touch with me and, and, and look I'll, through my website. Cause I have a whole gallery page as well that shows a lot more stuff. And I'll, and I'll just put in a pitch for the scarves because. Oh yes. Uh, and my scarves. Because, uh, because the, the, these images are so the colors and the translucent, so beautiful and wearable and also conversation starter. So if we're also talking about telling the story of the seaweed, you know, that, that brings the, once, once we're able to gather again, in in groups you walk in with your scarf and that begins the story the retelling and of i story. usually have one on but it was not not today <laughs> josie it's been such a pleasure such a delight having you here um bringing all of your learning and your deep heart and your incredibly skillful eye and hands um to our attention 
um, and really helping um, helping uh, uh, move us from our daily existence into a much greater sense of, you know, awareness of the wonder of this planet and uh, a sensitivity to its tremendous beauty. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Erwin. This has been a delight. And again, I encourage anyone who wants to be in touch with me, please. Um, I really, I love the conversation and this has just been wonderful. So thank you. For people who are listening and not uh, able to see the chat, that email address is Josie Islin at Gmail, was it? Uh, at Gmail works, but Josie Islin at lovingblind.com Loving. is, is my main email. Okay. Terrific. Thank you. And Kira, I turn it back over to you. Thank you so much. Um, gosh, it's just so beautiful. I mean, the colors and the light and your images, it just felt so nourishing and inspiring. So thank you for your artwork, but thank you for all your years of work telling the story of what's happening out there in our oceans. Again, we'll have recordings produced of this conversation available in about a week or two, thanks to Ken. And I just want to ask you one more time to please consider making a donation to help us keep these programs going. Each donation is so important to us. And we'll be having some more events coming up soon. You can see them all on our website. And we hope to see you at another event with us as soon as possible. Rabbi Erwin Keller and Josie Islin, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Josie Islin and host Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.